Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's the statement of the 19th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. January 6th of this year will mark exactly 100 years since it was ratified here in Kentucky. It was not an easy struggle for the women advocating for the right to vote on a national level or a local level. But Kentucky would be one of the first southern states to ratify the amendment and grant women the right to vote. To commemorate the centennial, we invited Shea Simonic Magnuson to talk to us about the suffrage movement and how it led to significant changes in our nation's political and social history. Shea is a library assistant at the Lexington Public Library and holds a master's degree in history. Her research on Kentucky women was featured during several of our programs across Lexington. Welcome, Shay. Hi, thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. So tell us a little bit about how the suffrage movement started here in the U.S. and when. So that's an interesting That's an interesting question because it has a very multifaceted answer. New Jersey actually gave women the right to vote in general elections and in state local elections for a very brief period of time in the early 1800s. And then they reversed that decision, much to the chagrin of the women in New Jersey. There were some states, some cities, some very small municipalities had school suffrage for a period of time. And when you say school suffrage, it means like voting in school. And- yeah, voting in school superintendent, voting on other decisions that pertain to the school. Basically, Kentucky actually had in small, I guess they called them like tertiary cities, mm-hmm. widowed women that were the heads of the household that had children mm-hmm. in these smaller districts. This wasn't including Lexington yet, but in like Winchester, had the right to vote in school elections. So that but they had to follow those restrictions that those very specific they didn't have specifically a man in the household. They had to be widowed specifically, mm-hmm. not have a brother or father in their household. And Lexington and Louisville would get those rights a little bit later, but in 1838 it was only women in those more rural areas. So this was 10 years prior to the Seneca Falls Convention and that's probably the easiest point to look at when we're talking about general voting rights across the nation. So Seneca Falls is like a point of reference. and Yeah, there were other attempts made here and there. There were women wanting other in smaller localities wanting rights. But the Seneca Falls Convention is when they really put, we want suffrage for women in general, in general elections and state elections on the map. Give us a little bit of background about the Seneca Falls Convention for our for our listeners that aren't familiar with, with that convention and what it meant for women's suffrage. It's pretty s- simple. You had about 300 men and women that went to Seneca Falls, which is in upstate New York, over a weekend in July of 1848, and they discussed a variety of things. And initially, national suffrage was not on the table. There were far more pressing issues. They were more interested in education rights for women. One thing that was talked about and would later be achieved was having female, not necessarily police officers, but they called them matrons when there were women present in a prison. I see. They also wanted to have female nurses in asylums when there were women there. Additionally, most states around this time had some sort of divorce laws on the books, but they were very limited. You had to prove 
for women, you had to prove abuse. You had to prove that you were in danger. Men could say, I want a divorce because my wife cheated on me. Women didn't have that opportunity. They were also concerned with women's property laws. When you entered into a marriage as a woman, you essentially lost all your autonomy. So your property would go to your husband. Your property would go to your husband. So at Seneca Falls Convention, those were the more important issues that were raised. There was debate that went back and forth on should we include suffrage in this? And in the end, they decided that it would go into their declaration of independence of sorts. That's what it was modeled after. And that's when it really came onto the main stage in terms of having the government at large knowing this is now what we want to attempt going forward. When you talk about women's suffrage, there were two major organizations. One was the National American Women's Suffrage Association and the American Women's Suffrage Association. Can you tell us the difference between the two? Those two groups splintered from the American Eagle Rights Association, which was founded by Lucy Stone in 1866, right after the Civil War ended. The primary reason that these groups split in 1870 was over debate over the 15th Amendment, which gave suffrage to African-American men. The NWSA, which was led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, didn't want that amendment to be passed because unless it was enfranchising women also. The AWSA, the American Women's Suffrage Association, which was led by Lucy Stone and her husband, Henry Blackwell, were more concerned with the rights of the African-American man if thought it might be too much to include women's suffrage. So they, they were fine with that. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony even went so far as to say that the 14th Amendment, which the language was a little vague, which they thought interpreted as it granted all Americans citizenship, meant that that granted them the right to vote. There was a Supreme Court case, Minor v. Happersett, in 1875, in which a woman was arguing that in Missouri, she should have the right to vote. She was turned away from registering to vote. Her and her husband filed a lawsuit, took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that the 14th Amendment did not give women the right to vote. Because at the time, it was many people were still preferring for it to go a state by state, especially women in the South. So the two groups would eventually merge And Lucy Stone would call for their merging in 1887, and then in 1890, they would combine to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which would then later become the League of Women Voters, which is what it is known as now. And this kind of internal squabbling over the minutia of who should get the right to vote first, African-American men or women, actually severely stalled out the suffrage movement in the U.S. across the board. For a good handful of years, it didn't wouldn't really pick up again until after they had come together in 1890. Tell us a little bit about who were the prominent women here in Kentucky that were on the forefront of the suffrage movement. A lot of the prominent women are extremely well known to your local Kentuckians, Madeline McDowell Breckenridge, the Clay sisters. Josephine uh, Kirby Henry is maybe one that's a little bit less known. She was actually responsible for the Married Women's Property Act in the late 1890s that radically changed the way that married women could inherit property. In the past, it had been, to put it simply, if you were to marry someone with no money and you had inherited a significant amount of money from your family, that was no longer your money. That was no longer your land or property. And so that got changed to any property, any money that a woman came into a marriage with was her own if the marriage dissolved. It didn't address divorce laws as much. It did 
change things in if they could if she could prove that her husband was they use the term in the code an infant so okay <laughs> from my research that essentially it translate at the time into feeble-minded or there was some sort of lunacy quote unquote then that could be a driving force behind not necessarily ending the marriage but gaining total property control over the yes. over the property so Ending the idea of coverture, essentially, yes. this, this law. When this was passed, do you think it gave women the boost to pursue more? You would think that. But it appears that it happened at a time where women's rights were still a little bit stalled out. Mm -hmm. This was the time when there had been so much already achieved. Women had been accepted into the University of Kentucky, into Berea, to other major educational institutions. So at this point in time, the focus was on getting a national amendment passed. Mm -hmm. So while this was a, a great boon for the women of Kentucky, most women would already, were already looking at something else. Yeah. Um, it happened so late into their struggle, into their fight for rights, that it was kind of like, yeah, this is great, but uh, we're already over here doing yeah. something else. You okay. guys need, everybody else needs to catch up. It would actually be expanded upon later into and it wasn't changed dramatically from then to now they were pretty radical statutes so this was something that josephine kirby henry and laura clay both worked on madeline mcdowell breckenridge was somebody that worked she was the female henry clay she was very much going about things very diplomatically and she was she wrote for her husband's newspaper she was using her words and her stature her, and her stature and her charm mm -hmm. to convince people she wasn't attacking things in a more direct route she was president of the Kentucky Equal Rights Association for a time but her illness she be, came down with um, tuberculosis and lost her foot became ill and that kind of caused her to pull away from her previous duties. But she had access to a newspaper, so in that yes. way she could so influence a lot of... She There was a bit of subterfuge with her <laughs> writing the newspaper, which I thought was really interesting, and in that her husband gave her the opportunity and said, here, you can write a woman's column. And so she kind of started out writing about basic upper-class society, women things, but then Social. would... Yeah, but then would insert more feminist rhetoric into her articles so she definitely went things about i don't want to use the word insidiously but there there was a bit more she used the resources yeah. she had at hand essentially yeah. yeah i wouldn't go so far as she wasn't like elizabeth caddy stanton who went to every woman with a grievance and said the only way to solve this is with the vote yeah. which is what she did her entire life um very direct yeah it was <laughs> You need workers' rights, you got to get the vote. Yeah. Uh, you want men to stop drinking, you need to get the vote.
Can you tell us a little bit about how the Civil War and its aftermath affected the movement? Can you talk to us a little bit about the dynamics and how it coincided with the push to have the African-American vote? So prior to the Civil War, there were a lot of women that were involved in the suffrage movement were focusing on getting ending slavery, mm-hmm. even especially Laura Clay. Yeah. However, as soon as the Civil War happened, the movement kind of stalled, which very much annoyed Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. who were became angry at uh, Lincoln. They said, you know, you freed the slaves now. Now we need to focus on women. So after the Civil War finished, you had a lot of women who had been pursuing abolitionism that their concern for African-American rights stopped with that. Mm, they, they thought were, it was over. Their-, their concern was ending slavery. Laura Clay was a huge proponent of abolitionism in Kentucky, especially with her with her father, her entire yeah. family. But to her, African-American rights ended there. Mm. That was the way with a lot of women. The push became, now women need the right to vote. Mm. Now... This is our next movement. Yes, yeah, this is our... We're not going to focus on... They, they weren't even concerned with African-American women getting the right to vote, mm. or let alone men. It is unfortunate to say that a lot of women that were involved in the suffrage movement were highly racist. Mm-hmm. Laura Clay, being the abolitionist that she was, felt that African-Americans were intellectually and morally inferior. Mm-hmm. She hid this under the guise of let's, you know, have educational and literacy requirements for women, thinking that that, for, well, for everyone, thinking that that would give not only the upper class an advantage, but white people an advantage, mm-hmm. essentially. So speaking of that, many of the activists were wealthier white women, so they didn't necessarily reflect the experiences of the average American woman or that of the African-American woman. Were there other women of color in Kentucky that were instrumental in advocating for equal rights? There were. problem is when you're looking into suffrage, when you're doing research, African-American women had significantly more on their plate to deal with. While getting the vote was important, a lot of times they were focused on equal access to jobs, education for their children and for themselves, especially in the South. Reconstruction was to be blown a hell of a time. (laughs) To be an African-American, sharecropping was almost as bad as slavery. Often they were campaigning just as hard Mm -hmm. as white women were, but their groups, due to racism, were completely separate. So you had people like Mary Britton and Lucy Wilmot that were very much suffragists, but weren't allowed within those groups. Eventually, the NAWSA would allow African-American women to be a part of those groups, but they weren't allowed to attend conventions. They weren't allowed to speak at any meetings. And a lot of women saw that excluding African-Americans was giving them an extra boost. They saw the the hatred mm-hmm. and how much uh, people didn't want African-Americans to have the right to vote and use that to their advantage to, to say, this is working, we're just going to keep excluding them. Mm-hmm. So even the even these women that were on the East Coast that were had brothers and family members fighting for the Union during the Civil War were so single-minded in that we have to do whatever it takes to get white women the vote, even if that means to exclude everybody else. So as a result of this, the groups were very much separate. Mm -hmm. Even women that weren't these upper-class elites 
those women that were a part of those groups found it easier to relate to them, found it easier to find something to motivate them, to push them into being a part of the suffrage movement. The Women's Christian Temperance Union Mm -hmm. was originally started by some very conservative religious women Mm -hmm. who saw alcohol as an evil that was destroying their family. A woman could bring home wages and her husband would just, could go just spend it on alcohol, leaving nothing for her and her children. Eventually, that would be passed as the 18th Amendment for Prohibition. As the East Coast became more industrialized, you had women's trade unions opening up. You had the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in 1903 was a tremendous catalyst for a lot of women to join unions to get behind the idea of suffrage, thinking that they this was their only way out. This is their only way to to have their voices heard through yeah. through their representatives and and such. So even if it didn't start out including average women, the leaders of the suffrage movement found a way, found grievances to bring them in. That's not to say there wasn't opposition. The, which would primarily come from, it was split in the country. In the South, you had opposition coming from people that didn't want African-Americans having the right to vote. In the East Coast, it was industrialists who saw suffrage as a way to unions and making their lives harder to, you know, they couldn't exploit people as much. And in the, the Midwest, funnily enough, it came from brewers associations. Wow. Men, because, because of the whole prohibition. Yes. Men that were running saloons that were producing alcohol saw the women uh, part of the suffrage unions, saw the women that were part of the WCTU as enemies. And even though prohibition was eventually passed, they still were vehemently against it. So as a result, oddly enough, a lot of the main opposition came from women who were married to these captains of industry, I suppose, in the East Coast and in the Midwest that were, husbands were almost using their wisest tools saying, you know, if we want to keep our way of life, you need to take, go to your, your ladies groups and explain to them why this is not a good thing. Something that I came across was women who had servants, who had people to run their household would say, women don't need the right to vote because, you know, they already have so much to do. They don't need to burden themselves with anything. Meanwhile, these women were basically just going to church and going to social events and everybody else was running their household. They, these women weren't, you know, cooking and cleaning all day and taking care of their children all day. There was nothing. You could burden them with a hundred more things and they would still be fine. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what role the state governments played. Earlier you were mentioning a lot of people wanted this to be a state's issue, like a a decision made by the state governments. How did the state governments play in extending the right for women to vote? The state governments, almost up until the 19th Amendment passed, were the only ones involved. The federal government would occasionally say, no, you can't do that. And that's about it. When Utah gave women the right to vote as a territory, the federal government noticed that Women failed to vote against polygamy and yanked that right to vote, which they would eventually give back when Utah became an official state. But everything was done at the state level or even the city level, the smaller. It was the states that granted school suffrage that, you know, would open up education opportunities or go completely against it. So most of the battle for suffrage was not taking place at the federal level. They were, as you get closer to 1920, there is more evidence of 
we need let's make a big push to target the government, yeah. especially during World War One. They were like, hey, we're doing all this awesome stuff. We're being great. We're helping out everybody. Why don't we have the right to vote yet? Which was eventually what would change President Wilson's mind it was after World War One. He would go, yeah, they need the right to vote. So it was especially for I mean, even Laura Clay didn't want a national amendment. She was so set on states' rights. And that was how it was for a lot of people in the South, mm-hmm. that it was also a primary worry that a national amendment would give everybody the right to vote. And that means everybody, yeah. which is not how it turned out yeah. anyway, but we can talk about that later. So for 90% of the movement, it was focused at the state level. in England affect the movement here in the U.S.? Suffrage was very much an, a global issue, international issue. And around the same time in, in England, there was a, a heavy, heavy suffrage movement. How did those leaders influence the leaders of suffrage movement here in the U.S.? So initially, not at all. The campaigns over in the U.K. were far more militant, mm-hmm. which you could describe this suffrage movement in the U.S. as being militant right near the end, right in the last maybe five years. But women in the UK were like Alice Paul. There were marches. There were protests. There were hunger protests. There were literal martyrs to the cause as there were a couple of women that were trampled by horses. The United States being, being that you have more of a government on a state level, it gave more of an advantage because people felt like they could focus on that a bit more. They could go about things a bit more diplomatically and kind of work their way up. Yeah. So the the methods of the United Kingdom did not really transfer over to the United States until right before the 19th Amendment was passed. Elizabeth Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, went over to England, got married, and was campaigning over there Mm -hmm. and brought some of the methods back. And it was right around World War I that was the the last little bit of push for the amendment Mm -hmm. and that women were starting to campaign in the streets and protest in March. Oddly enough, the U.S. or the U.K. were not the first country to give women the right to vote in the Western world, so to speak. That was New Zealand, Mm. which I thought was very interesting, especially because when we think about the Western world, we don't consider uh, Australia and New Zealand. But in 1893, they actually 
gave women the right to vote, and they had a, of the women that were eligible, they had a 68% turnout. Immediately following the passage of the 19th Amendment in the United States, you had next to no women that actually went out and voted. The amendment was passed when? The amendment was officially passed by the United States. It was ratified. The last state ratified it was Tennessee Mm -hmm. of only four southern states, Mm -hmm. Texas, Arkansas, Kentucky, and then Tennessee that ratified the 19th Amendment was in August of 1920. When did Kentucky? Kentucky ratified January 6th of 1920. We were kind of in the last third, but considering that we're more or less a southern state, and that was where the most of the opposition was, it's something to be proud of. So what were the effects on women and their engagement in politics, though, after after the General Assembly passed it? So even before the amendment was passed, you had women in more, I guess, technicalities that they ended up serving. There were women that their husbands passed, and so they took over their position for till the end of the term. You would have thought that women would go out and, and be campaigning for elected positions in droves, which didn't happen because though the suffrage movement is kind of falls into that what you call an observational bias Mm -hmm. and that we can see it as this big thing, but most women still were more conservative. And those that did go out and vote were still voting the ways of their husbands. So it didn't make as much of an impact right off the bat. And you said that voter turnout was actually not high. No, it was relatively low. We reached by about 1950, the national voter turnout, women would match men. And now women are voting in higher numbers than men. Mm-hmm. You had Jeanette Pickering Rankin, the first woman to be elected. Actually, I guess technically this was before the amendment. Montana gave women the right to vote in 1914. There were a lot of Western states that gave, as they became states, gave women the right to vote, which Montana was one of them. So she ran as a Republican for the House of Representatives and served for a good long while. She was elected in 1916 and again in 1940, and she's on record as the, in 1941 as the only person in Congress to vote against going to war with Japan because she was a diehard pacifist. Mm-hmm. Mary Flannery is the first woman elected as a state representative in 1922. A lot of women would follow in her wake. Sorry, this is in Kentucky. Catherine Langley in 1927 becomes the first woman to serve from Kentucky in the House of Representatives. Unfortunately, in Kentucky, things would stall out a bit until the 1960s. Although there were a lot of efforts coming from Kentucky for the suffrage movement, those old traditions, those old, old ways of thinking were still hard to shake for a lot of people. Of course, it's a social. Yeah. It's a social effect. So it's it, that takes generation to, to overturn. I, I don't want to say it's easy to, to change laws or submit amendments. But when you when you talk about social change, of course, that's going to. It almost takes longer. It does. Of course. Yeah. There were. Plenty of other women. We have also in 1922, Florence Ellenwood Allen was elected to the Supreme Court of Ohio. You have Secretary of State in New Mexico, Soledad Chacon, becomes the first Latina and the first woman of color to hold a statewide elected executive office. Those, those early days, it took a while for things to pick up. But I like to compare it to the 2018 midterm elections were monumental for women in the United States. You had the first two Native American women elected to Congress. You had the first two Muslim women elected to Congress. Tennessee had its first female senator. Massachusetts had its first African-American female representative. We have a long way to go, but it's foolish to focus on that and not appreciate the leaps and bounds that we've made in the last hundred years. 
Yeah. And I think it's also foolish to point to that and say, okay, we're, we're done. That's, I mean, no. it's, it's not, it's not a, there's no end to the journey. There's always going to be a push and a, and a shove. And a. And for a lot of women, the 19th Amendment was not the end yeah. of voting rights. Mm-hmm. Very ironically and stupidly, Native American women were not considered as citizens until 1924. Wow. African-American women, the 19th Amendment meant was more or less meaningless. Mm-hmm. There were so many voting restrictions, especially in the South, put upon men and women alike. If you ever are interested, you can look up online the some of the literacy tests mm-hmm. that they called them. And those are roundabout ways to restrict voting yes. rights. Yeah. And I have looked at several of them and I have a master's degree and they make no sense. Mm-hmm. They are purposely designed to confuse and dissuade people. Mm-hmm. In addition, there were also voting taxes. So it really wouldn't be until 1965, the Voting Rights Act, when things became a bit more equal. There are still intimidation tactics being used to prevent people from going to the polls. Native American women, when when we look at suffrage, when we look at women's rights, it's really easy to point at the 19th Amendment and be like, that's the landmark. Mm-hmm. That's what fixed everything. And that's not true. It's a very important moment in women's history and in U.S. history. But it didn't end everything. Yeah. And it also distracts from the massive amount of progress that led up to that. Mm-hmm. Women getting educational rights, women getting the right to divorce without having to property rights, inheritance yeah. rights, and, and all other all other things. I mean, we're still fighting for equal pay, so you the know, reproductive there's a, yeah. rights. Exactly. There's, there's still a lot, a lot more steps to take, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't forget the sacrifices and the struggles had by our sisters in the past and the people that are still don't have complete rights mm-hmm. that are still fighting depending on what what your privilege is you people it's easy to ignore some of those things yeah. and i think that stresses the importance of engagement consistent engagement whether it's on the local level or on the national level that's the only way to change what our laws say about us as a country and as a people it's important. I think all those people that you mentioned throughout the podcast are testament to the importance of always fighting for what you believe in and what your neighbors and your fellow countrymen need in order to improve their life. On that note, I want to thank you so much for your research and contributing to the Kentucky Room podcast. We really enjoyed having you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Good. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.